I've asked Brother Short, he will just read to us the passage in Mark chapter 14 from verse 12 to verse 26. Mark 14, verse 12. (coughs) And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the householder, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out, and went to the city, and found it as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were at table eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the same dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We are going to go on tonight with this next portion of Uh, this subdivision, the threshold of his supreme service and work. You will see here um, the Last Supper. I've entitled it the Last Supper. I have divided it into three. Now, um, due to my being sort of knocked down earlier in the week, um, I've not been able to get to the end here. So what we're going to do this evening is take an introduction to this whole uh, section and then we're going to dwell on this preparations for the Passover. Uh, the Lord must know why, but still, uh, we'll see. And we'll see whether perhaps there's something here uh, to learn, um, for us to learn, or something that the Lord wants us just to stop with. I don't know, the Lord's ways are beyond me. Um, I only know that they're always right. And um, sometimes the Lord just wants us to stop at something because we would have gone over it straight away onto something perhaps we would consider much more important and miss the real uh, lesson that God wants to write on our hearts. Well, now we come to the second supper. In this section, 
entitled The Threshold of His Supreme Service and Work, we have two suppers. One in which we see the kind of service God longs for and desires in a disciple, and the second, that kind of service perfectly revealed and expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We come to this second uh, supper. It has come to be known simply and fittingly as the last supper. And that's why I have called it this. I think it's the simplest and most fitting title of all. The last supper. Now, the Passover, verse 12, if you will keep open this chapter in front of you, on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover or Passover lamb, the Passover was the supreme festival of the year, lasting in all eight days and drawing hundreds of thousands of pilgrims and worshippers to Jerusalem. In an eyewitness account of Josephus, the Jewish general and historian, he tells us, if his figures are to be believed, that there were at one time 2,400,000 people at one Passover. An enormous number of the nation gathered there. It drew a tremendous number of people uh, to Jerusalem. It commemorated, of course, the miraculous exodus from Egypt. That initial and basic deliverance of the nation from slavery into freedom by God himself. Now, you would have to read those chapters in Exodus, especially from Exodus chapter 11 to chapter 15 to understand that. But this um, meal, this traditional meal, still kept, of course, in Jewish circles today, commemorates this initial and basic deliverance of God, of the nation. It was the birth of the nation. Up to then, they'd been really a tribe. At that point, the nation was born. And it was a deliverance by the intervention of God himself. I don't think there's much need for me to speak at length about that story. Most of you will know it, and if you don't, you can read it in those chapters in Exodus. What I do want to point out is this, that the whole festival centered in the Passover lamb in the selection, the slaying, and the eating of a lamb. Now, I'll say that again. The whole festival centered in the, um, in the Passover lamb, in the selection, the slaying, and the eating of a lamb. It had to be a male one year old, unblemished and perfect. It had to be slain, and its blood had to be placed on the lintel and the doorpost of one's home. Its flesh had to be roasted and eaten with unleavened bread, that is, bread in which there was no yeast, no leaven, and bitter herbs. Every single part 
of the ritual of the Passover commemorated what God had done in the past on that particular night in Egypt at least 1,500 years before. By that lamb slain, God had saved a people and turned their slavery into freedom. By the blood of that lamb, marking their homes, they had escaped judgment and death which came upon the whole Egyptian nation. They had obtained forgiveness and were accounted righteous because of the blood on the outside of their home. By the eating of that lamb, they were completely identified with God, with the sovereign authority of God, with the kingdom of God. Make no mistake about it. The Passover and all that went just immediately before it was the invasion of another kingdom into the, the kingdom of this world. It was the invasion of the throne of God, the authority and power of God over against the authority and power of darkness. It was a, a combat, a conflict, a contest between Satan and God over whether a people should be delivered and freed. Make no mistake about that. When the people ate that lamb, they identified themselves with God, with his sovereign authority, with his kingdom invading this other kingdom, his power invading and defeating this other power. They identified themselves with his purpose to have a people for himself. They identified themselves by eating that lamb with the character of God. By that lamb, God had obtained a son that would serve him. Now if you turn back to Exodus and chapter 4 and verse 22 and 23, we read these words. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and I have said unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. This is often overlooked. The whole point of this deliverance was for God. The obtaining of a people that would serve him. The obtaining of a son that would serve him. The kind of service that comes out of relationship to God. Now, I say that this is really quite important. If you turn over the page to chapter 7 and verse 16, we read the same thing again. Chapter 7 and verse 16. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. 
The very meaning of that deliverance was this principle of service. It was inherent within the nation's birth. This is the whole contention of God with the Jewish people. They were not to be something turned in on themselves. Any more than we as the people of God now are meant to be turned in on ourselves. Self-satisfying, self-seeking, looking all the time for experiences that will glorify us, that will help us. This is what happened to the people of God under the old covenant. They became exclusive. They thought of themselves as superior. Something in themselves. Something that somehow or other meant something to God. Just naturally. But the very principle within their deliverance was service. Let my son go that they might serve me, said the Lord. And isn't it interesting that he called them his firstborn? As if he wanted to use them to bring many other nations into such a relationship with himself. They would be the pioneers. Well, I must stop or we shall spend the whole evening uh, on that matter. But the fact is that um, this uh, matter of service is written right into the very heart of the Passover meal. Let my people go that they may serve me. By that lamb, God had obtained a people that would serve him. He had obtained a son that would serve him. Sons that would serve him. Mark you, not a service stemming from duty, from cringing fear of punishment or of loss. Should we not serve God? but flowing out of a relationship with God. Like father, like son. It is the dynamic and generating principle of divine love. Divine love can do nothing other than serve. Here, I must say, in fact, we have come back to Mark's Gospel. Go right back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. And what do we read? We read these words. You will remember those of you who have been with us from the beginning in these studies. The beginning of the, of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This gospel, which speaks of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, as the servant of the Lord, starts off by declaring not the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, but the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because service comes out of sonship. It comes out of a divine nature, like God, like Father, like Son. You've got it in this Passover meal. In what it commemorates, in what it signifies, symbolizes. Yet, we have to say this quite clearly, that the Passover from its very inception, had been only a foreshadowing of something 
to come, in reality, someone to come. It was not mere commemoration, but in fact, completely and essentially forward-looking. Now, of course, all this most of us understand, I suppose, but for the people in those days, it was essentially a backward-looking festival. Few, if any, realised that, least of all the twelve. For the thousands thronging Jerusalem, it was something essentially to do with the past, not with the future. Something that commemorated a deliverance right back in antiquity. Not something which in commemorating that deliverance prefigured and foreshadowed something yet to come. Certainly no one realized that the point of its fulfillment had come. All that is foreshadowed from its inception and in its commemoration down through the long years was about to be carried out. For God had not saved a people through the sacrifice of lambs, shedding of blood, of animals, but what that sacrifice had prefigured, the Lamb of God who would bear away the sin of the world. The focal point of Old Testament history and prophecy and typology had arrived. Within these next few hours, the Lamb of God, without sin, without spot or blemish, perfect, tried and passed by God himself, was to be slain. The Passover was to be sacrificed. His blood was to be poured out for our sin, sealing a new and an eternal covenant with us. His body was to be given for us. Thus, the aspirations and yearnings of the people of God under the old covenant were finally now to be satisfied. Their anguished travail at last was to result in birth. Yet not one single soul realized it. Not even the twelve who'd spent three years in the closest relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It had dawned on none of them. They were standing, mark you this, mark it carefully. They were standing at the heart of the most extraordinary and the most significant fulfillment of divine purpose and divine promise in the whole of time. And they were totally unaware of it. Only Mary. Mary of Bethany had dimly caught sight of what was happening. The rest, they were being carried along on the tide of divine energy 
involved in its very realization of God's purpose, and yet, at the same time, blind to it. Now I want to stop here. Here's our first lesson. How solemn a lesson there is in this. You and I can stand sometimes at the point of things that are being fulfilled by God to lesser or greater degree and be totally unaware of it. We can even be carried along by divine energy involved in the very realization in some way or another of God's purpose in greater or lesser degree, and be blind to it. I am sure that in all, when we read church history, and we see what God has done, when we read the New Testament, when we read Acts, we would have felt, well, of course, if I'd been there, I would have spotted it instantly. In a moment, I would have known, I would have been right at the heart of the whole thing, given to God, rubbish. Human nature has always been the same. It's the same today. There were plenty of people involved in these things. There was an Ananias and a Sapphira who thought they could lie and get away with it. There were many others who thought they could get away with other things. All goes to show that we can be at the very heart of something that God is doing and not and be quite unaware really of it. Just in the same way that we here in this room, all of us, are seeing the fulfillment of prophecies, thousands and thousands of years old, which should really in many ways bowl us out. At least we should hear the word from heaven, not get wrapped up in some fantastic theories about the coming of the Lord or sort of go away to bury our heads in all the details um, of the coming of the Lord, but at least to hear that trumpet clarion call, watch, be ready. But are we ready? Things can be fulfilled in front of our eyes. We can almost be part of it. We can almost touch it. We can almost feel it. And yet somehow or other, we're blind to it. Just carried along. Here there is a very big lesson that we will underline and leave. May God, through Calvary and Pentecost, make us people who have an understanding of the times in which we live. People who are sensitive to the Spirit of God. People who are open to the ways of God. Who understand what God is doing, who are cooperating with him, co-workers with him. May God help us in this. There's much more one could say uh, on this matter, but I leave it. The first day of unleavened bread, verse 12, the first day of unleavened bread was the 14th of Nisan. Or, if this bogs you a little more, Abib. Um, Nisan was the latter uh, name for this month, 
Abib or Aviv was the earlier name in Exodus. <clears throat> and the 14th day of Nisan or Aviv was the day on which all work stopped in the early afternoon, all leaven in one's home was destroyed, and the Passover lambs already selected, examined, and passed on the tenth of Nisan or Aviv were slain between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. in the temple. Thereafter, the blood of that slain lamb was taken and sprinkled on the lintel and the doorpost of your home. The body of the lamb was taken in and was prepared, roasted, and that same evening was eaten being the 15th of Nisan. Now, if that uh, um, uh, sort of confuses you even more, let me just point out before I pass on, uh, for those who are more intelligent, that the, by Jewish reckoning, days begin with the sunset. So the 14th of Nisan ended in the evening as sunset, and the 15th of Nisan began. So the first day of unleavened bread was up to that sunset, and then after that on the 15th, the first part of the 15th, you ate the Passover lamb. You had the Passover meal. Now the vexed and controversial question as to whether this supper was the Passover meal observed at the normal and traditional <coughs> time, or whether it was the Passover meal observed one day earlier or one day in advance with the notable and significant exception of the lamb, or whether it was just an ordinary evening meal which Christ made an extraordinary one, we will leave till we study the Gospel of John. Um, I said this when we took Matthew. Uh, the fact is, this is one of the most involved problems in the New Testament, and I'm not going to stop with it this evening, or I shall go straight back uh, to bed. Um, the Synoptic Gospels would appear clearly to agree that it was the Passover meal observed at the normal time on the normal date. John's Gospel would appear to suggest that it was an ordinary evening meal. The matter has been discussed from the earliest times and has divided the most able of Bible scholars. I am quite sure there is an answer, but we will leave it until we come uh, to the Gospel of John. What we can say, and say quite clearly, is that all four Gospels agree that the crucifixion was on Friday and that the Last Supper was on Thursday evening. It also seems reasonably clear to me, uh, um, uh, only to me, um, that this supper was the traditional Passover meal whether kept at the usual time or whether kept one day earlier. It is certainly hard to believe 
that Mark says uh, anything else other than that it was the Passover kept at the normal day. If you read the here, it's quite clear on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Couldn't be clearer. Uh, so, as we are studying the Gospel according to Mark, we shall leave our problem uh, until we come to John, where I promise you we shall deal with it exhaustively. Um, <clears throat> what we can then therefore say is this, that Christ, therefore, fulfills in himself and in the work he is about to accomplish at Calvary, the age-long typology of the Passover. He takes the Passover meal and invests it with an altogether new and more glorious meaning. Traditionally, unleavened bread was broken three times during the course of the Passover meal. And four cups of wine, at least, were drunk at prescribed points during the course of that meal. Christ took the unleavened bread and the cup of wine, either on one of those occasions, or especially, and made them the infinitely significant and meaningful symbols of the new and eternal covenant. Now, when we actually <coughs> look at this, um, the Lord willing, next week, um, uh, we will say a little bit more about this. But what I'm just trying to say now is that <coughs> it was the Passover meal. This breaking of bread, this blessing, this blessing and breaking of bread is very much part of the Passover meal. Three times you take the matzot, the dry uh, unleavened bread, and you say a blessing, break it, and distribute it. You take a cup four times, and you give it. One of those cups is called the cup of blessing. That may give us a clue. Later, when the Apostle Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the uh, blood of Christ. Well, I, I, I leave that. But what I want just to point out, you see, is that the Lord Jesus has taken this Passover meal and fulfilled it in himself, and then taken some of the things, as it were, of that meal, and made them the significant symbols of the new and eternal covenant. Now, I've divided these verses into um, three sections. The preparations for the Passover, verses 12 to 16, and I have subtitled them, Further Lessons in True Service. And then, <coughs> the Last Supper, the perfect expression of true service. And then... The prediction of the disciples falling away, verses 27 to 31, and I have subtitled that the false basis for service. 
Well, now this evening we shall just look at this. Preparations for the Passover. Just these five verses, not many. Uh, just these five verses. Let's look at them. <clears throat> In these verses, we have the record of the preparations made by the Lord and his disciples for their keeping of the Passover. Um, the disciples come to the Lord Jesus um, and say to him, where would you have us uh, go and prepare the Passover? And this was the occasion for this remarkable incident. The Lord said, you go into Jerusalem and when you've gone through the city gate, you will meet a man coming towards you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. <clears throat> um, he will turn into a house. Now, in the East, you never, you never go into a house. You always wait till you're asked to come in. <clears throat> go in. Follow him. Go right in and say to the master of the house or the owner of the house, where is the guest room for the master to keep the Passover? And without a, without a question, without a doubt, without a tremor, he will um, say, he will take you upstairs to a large upper room already furnished and prepared. Uh, the disciples went off without a murmur and also without any questioning. They found the man, just as the Lord had said. They never said anything to him. They followed him. They went into the house. They found the householder, the house owner. They spoke to the house owner. The house owner took them upstairs and showed them a large room, already prepared, made ready for the Passover. It all came to pass, just as the Lord had said. Now, just one or two points here <clears throat> I want to make. To at least, so that we at least understand this story, and then we'll draw the lessons from it. First, verse 13. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water or a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. Now, in these days, when we are so used to tap water, we forget that someone carrying a pitcher of water a jar of water or can of water, uh, in a city like Jerusalem, was one of the most common sights it was possible to see. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people carrying water, especially <coughs> if the few fountains there were uh, happened to be along that particular street. So this is not so extra uh, extraordinary. We forget that, you see. We're now so used to tap water that we think, well, of course, you see, if we walked down to Richmond and uh, saw someone carrying a can of water, that would be an unusual sight. Of course, we pick them out instantly. Shopping bags, well, everyone's got those. But a can of water, that would be somewhat extraordinary. We forget that <clears throat> this was far from being an unusual sight. It was, in fact, um, uh, a, a common one, and could have presented these two disciples with a very real problem. Which one? Don't forget that. What was remarkable, <coughs> sufficiently unusual anyway to be a sign, was the sight of a man 
carrying a pitcher of water. Look up, dear sisters. It was normally women's work. Now, it was in that point that it was unusual. It wasn't that there were no men who carried water, but it was sufficiently unusual as to be a sign. Most of the ladies were the people, the ladies were the ones who would be carrying all the water. Uh, I think most of you have seen those old Bible pictures with ladies gracefully swaying down with pictures either on their thing or on their head. Um, the fact is that it wasn't so normal to see a gentleman uh, uh, carrying a pitcher of water. So that... rendering in the Revised Standard Version and the New English Bible, master of the house in the American Standard Version, owner of the house in the New American Standard Bible. Literally, it is master of the house, a house owner or householder. And then in verse 14, fourthly, note this, guest chamber, you have in the authorised version, and the Revised Version, guest room in the Revised Standard Version in the New American Standard Bible, just ordinary room in the New English Bible. The word can mean an inn, a lodging place, or a guest room, and simply um, means a kind of letting down, where they used to take down from the uh, camel or animal of burden, uh, the things, or whether they used to unstrap themselves, uh, a kind of loosing down. So, now, first four little points about the story. Now, look at the passage as a whole. Though easily overlooked, these few verses are full of divine meaning. And in them, we have another picture of genuine service. That's why I've entitled this small passage, Further Lessons in True Service. We know absolutely nothing about this householder. We know neither his name nor his background. All that we know is that he willingly gave of his best. It would seem that he was a disciple. Verse 14, the master says, note the way it's put, the master says. Um, that's in the authorised version, revised version, New English Bible. The teacher says. Revised Standard Version of the New American Standard Bible. If you turn to um, Matthew uh, chapter 26, where we have the parallel account of this, these few verses, Matthew 26 and verses 17 to 19, we read, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where wilt thou that we make ready for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The teacher saith, My time is at hand, I keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. I don't think the Lord would have spoken like that to anyone other than a disciple. I keep, I keep, the Passover at your house with my disciples. With the twelve, that is, you see. The teacher says, I keep the Passover at your house. 
this unknown disciple had been in some way forewarned by God and obeyed in faith. For the large upper room was completely furnished and ready when the two disciples came. Verses 15 and 16. He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. There are those that believe that the Lord had already made the uh, arrangement with this disciple at some earlier date. <clears throat> the fact that Jerusalem was crowded, that it was left so late to make such a booking, is seen to be evidence for this. Also that the room had been already prepared, and that the householder expressed no surprise at all at their request. All is seen to be evidence for the fact that the Lord had made an earlier booking uh, with this uh, householder. Of course, there were multitudes of homes in uh, Jerusalem uh, that let out uh, private guest rooms on such occasions. Nevertheless, in my estimation, this undercuts the way the story is recorded. Mark tells it, as does also Luke, as being something quite remarkable. The plain reading of this account suggests that the circumstances were miraculous. Nor does Matthew's account, and in Matthew's account we have we are not told about uh, following a man carrying a pitcher of water uh, and so on. It all seems much more uh, direct. Even Matthew's account doesn't contradict this. Indeed, Matthew's account seems to rule out any prearrangement by Christ. The way that they were sent and were just told to say, the teacher says, I keep the Passover at your house. Anyway... The fact is that the whole incident is remarkable. It reminds one of the story of the ass and the colt in an earlier chapter of Mark, Mark 11. Do you remember the story where the Lord said to the disciples, go over against the village and you will find there an ass and a colt tethered. Untie them. If anyone asks you what uh, it's for, say, for the it's, we're, it's for the master's business and bring it here. And they did, they went off exactly without questioning, found the ass and the colt, untethered it. Some bystanders said, what are you doing? And they said, it's the master's business. And they said, all right, take it. Reminds one of it. In both cases, we have unknown disciples who without questioning or complaint put their possessions at the disposal of Christ. In both cases, we have instantaneous faith and obedience on the part of certain apostles as well as these unknown disciples. In both cases, matters of tremendous significance hang on the provision of quite ordinary things. In one case, a cult. And it was the triumphal entry of the Messiah into Jerusalem, officially, as Messiah. 
and the other it was the provision of an upper room in which one whole age was to be brought to conclusion and a new covenant was to be spoken of and the symbols of that new and eternal covenant given. Here once again we learn some more vital lessons about true service. Here is the first. Real service is always utterly dependent upon faith and obedience. Get this clear, every single one here this evening. If you would serve the Lord, there must be faith and obedience. There is no such thing as service apart from faith and obedience. Follow me, the Lord said. That requires faith and obedience. There can be no service, no real service, no true service. It's a sham, it's a facade. It's just a sphere in which we satisfy ourselves. Where there is no faith and obedience. Faith and obedience are vital qualities in this matter of service, absolute faith and utter obedience. We see it in these two apostles. Oh, we know they were dim, we know they were blind, we know they didn't even understand what was going to happen, but oh, how they praised God for this one little thing about them both. They went off without as much as a complaint, a murmur or a doubt. At least they can look back and say, well, we too, we prepared that meal. These two apostles, they trusted and obeyed. It would have been so easy to question. What do you mean, a man carrying a picture? Isn't it easier, Lord, to tell us which house? Couldn't you just tell us? Or well, what do you mean, Lord? I mean, <clears throat> supposing we don't meet him. Supposing he gets caught up with some friend and goes wandering off another road, a route. What do we do, Lord? I mean, give us an alternative, Lord. I mean, if we don't meet the man, what should we do? Not a question. Not even what we would call legitimate questions. No questions. No doubts. No complaints. They trusted implicitly in Christ's word and obeyed it to the letter. It says in verse 16, and the disciples set out and went to the city. They did exactly what the master had told them to do. Instantaneous faith and obedience. Now it's one thing to say, I believe in the Lord, I trust in the Lord, I believe the Lord is absolutely marvellous and wonderful. It's another thing to obey him. Faith and obedience. James says that if a person hasn't got works, then he hasn't got faith. And what he means by works is obedience. He carries his faith into a concrete expression. He concretely expresses his faith. No murmuring, no complaining, no insistence 
on clearer understanding or directions. They just went ahead at his word and got on with the job. And that's what always happens when we trust and obey. These people who are forever sitting like some Simon the Stylite on top of some pole waiting for clearer direction from God. Thing. They stayed their whole life on top of a pole waiting, 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 waiting from some voice from heaven. But you know, you never get any further light till you obey the light you've got. The Lord had said to them, go into the city. So it was no good saying, well now, Lord, just wait. What about this? What about that? Give us a little bit more clarity on this matter. Will the man be wearing black, brown, or grey? <coughs> Will he have sandals or shoes, Lord? Will he be white-haired or um, red-haired? Tell us, Lord, has he got a beard or is he clean-shaven? Give us a few more uh, 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 sort of means of identification. Not a murmur, not a complaint, no insistence upon clearer directions and so on. Off they go. And because they went off, simply trusting and obeying, they came right into the centre of the will of God and got on with the job. We see the same lesson in the householder, the disciple, who being in some way in tune with the master, had trusted and obeyed. How did he know about this upper room? Had some angel woken him up in the middle of some night and said to him, the master wants to have Passover meal here. Uh, the Passover meal was not just a question of, uh, of certain things on the table. The Passover meal required quite a lot of other preparations, the decorating of the room and everything else. All this was absolutely ready. All the disciples had to do was move in and prepare the meal. Well, this householder, this disciple, had somehow or other been told what the will of God was. How? We do not know. But he had trusted and obeyed. So when the moment of crisis came, no panic, no frantic rushing about, no frenzied preparations at the last moment to get it all in order, it was the rest of faith and obedience. Now, you know, when we walk with the Lord, when we really trust and obey, there is a rest of faith and obedience. Just supposing this man had said, well now, you know, you've got to be very careful of these angels. <laughs> it could be, after all, an angel of light. Be the enemy, so that I get everything ready and look a fool in front of the whole family. Or it could be that neighbours will say, have you heard about so-and-so? Thought he had a word from God and got the whole place ready. <laughs> of course, no one used the room at all. In the end, no one came. So he might have said, we'll half get the room ready. And when it's clear that this is the Lord, we'll plough ahead with the rest of preparations. He would have had a, a business. What with his own Passover preparations downstairs, I suppose, there would have been a real stew on in that particular household. 
But you see, there was the rest of faith and obedience. He simply trusted and obeyed. Suddenly, he confronts two disciples. And they say to him, The master says, Where's the... It's all right. Come upstairs. Up he takes them, shows them into a room. Oh, they say it's nothing. Oh, just peace. Well, there you are. You see, we've got a lesson. A lesson here. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. How simple. It's almost childish the way it's put, and yet it embodies a truth that goes to the core, to the heart, to the root of everything in the Christian life and in the service of God. Then there is another lesson. Let's hasten on. There's another lesson here. We see the, that how real service has much to do with practical and mundane realities. Two apostles of all things, Peter and John, peeling the spuds. <laughs> well, that's what it is. If it had been a Christmas meal, there they are, two of them, Peter and John, sitting there peeling the potatoes, getting the sprouts ready, getting the whole thing. Yes, you may think it sounds very, very, almost blasphemous to bring down. But that's exactly what it would have been. It would have been like a Christmas meal. The Passover meal is just like that. Still is. These two men, these men who were looked upon as the apostles, Peter and John, they were the ones who were all involved in the practical, mundane realities of the preparations for the Passover. Preparing the meal. They had no idea whatsoever just how historic, how full of significance that meal was to be. As they were doing all those preparations, like any other household or any other person in Jerusalem who was also doing, they had no idea what that meal was going to lead to. How much poorer they would have been if they'd opted out. How much poorer they would have been if they had insisted that perhaps they should not do it, but some of the lesser apostles. Let them go and do it. They did not realize, realize whilst doing the chores that so much of Old Testament history and typology focused on that particular meal. Now, of course, we can't take this too far. But you know how often we all would like to forego the dreary, mundane side of service, the chore and concentrate on the more glamorous side, the pulpit, the platform ministry, the meeting of people, the public ministry, anything, in fact, which exhibits or satisfies self. 
Service is service. However, whether it is preparing a meal, washing a floor, praying in secret, or preaching in public, and indeed the way we do the mundane, the routine, the chores, determines very largely how much we will be involved in the mighty and significant unfoldings of the purpose of God. Now, don't just overlook this as if this is some nice little sentimental lesson. Let, re let me remind you of a few things. When did God choose David as king? When he was looking after the sheep. When did God take hold of Gideon as the deliverer of Israel? When he was threshing out a wheat, a barley, secretly for fear of the Midianites. When did God take hold of Moses and appear to him? When he was keeping the sheep in the backside of the desert. We could go on, and we could go on, and we could go on. God takes very careful note of our attitude to mundane and routine very careful we have often said a little straw tells which way the wind blows that's why God takes such note of those things which are not the glamorous side of service and the Lord summed it all up in these words he that is faithful in little will be faithful Well, I just mention it to you. I say there's something here again that we can take note of. We see the same lesson in this man carrying the pitcher of water. Verse 13. If you'd taken an hour off that day, an hour off from his master's business, dawdled somewhere, gone into some bazaar, got talking, with some relative or friend, or gone off on a route of his own choosing, how much would have been lost? Now, don't just say, ah, but do you see, the foreordination and predestination of God was in this. Remember what the Lord Jesus says a few verses on about Judas. The Son of Man has to be betrayed, but he said, woe to that man that betrays him. One hand the sovereignty of God and the other human responsibility. How the two tie up, we don't know, but they tie up somewhere. We could well understand, I could anyway, this dear man, if he had taken an hour off, or if he had dawdled. What a job. He was doing the most menial, humdrum, despised job. In fact, in... It was considered really not a man's work. Maybe sometimes he felt like a cog in a machine, a kind of human conveyor belt, carrying water backwards and forwards to his master's home. But his tireless fulfillment of duty, though so ordinary and routine, gave him a place in God's work. And in the mysterious realization of God's purpose that day. 
I feel sorry sometimes, some of us, we do so well, and then all of a sudden, on a particular occasion, we're not there. And that particular occasion is when the Lord acts. Thank God this man was there when the Lord acted. If, however, there is one lesson, I think, from this passage, above all these others, that we should learn, it is this. Never despise the day of small things. Never despise the day of small things. More lose out here than anywhere else. Huge matters often hang on tiny issues. Enormous things come out of quite obscure and small beginnings. Things that finally shape the heavens and the earth start almost unnoticed. Never despise the day of small things. We see it in this small passage on all sides. A humble water carrier doing his job Menial, despise, walking into the realization of God's purpose. Two apostles preparing a meal which was to be the fulfillment of Old Testament history and prophecy. An upper room given by a disciple to become the venue in which an age, one whole age, was fulfilled and a new covenant spoken of, the symbols of it given. It's not really just that. I mean, when you look at it, these small things which seem to mean so little, in some cases quite material things, because of the attitude toward them, has brought that person into a direct relationship with God in vast things. Now, is not this but the gathering up of much in this gospel? Let me remind you, five loaves, <coughs> two fishes, and a vast multitude fed. That little boy's lunch has become <clears throat> the immemorial symbol of Christ's giving. Two mites of a widow woman and a place in God's heart. That woman justified all God's dealings with Israel that day. The temple, your house is left to you desolate. A rejected nation, a rejected temple, a rejected priesthood. But that one woman, two little mites, and she gave more than all of them put together. 
She found the place in the heart of God. A cold, an untried cold. Give. And what has it become? The means of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the Messiah, that for which thousands of years had waited. Prophets, saints, martyrs, had all looked for that day. <coughs> An alabaster flask of spike. And what does it lead to? An eternal place beside the gospel. All these found a place in God's word. Do you know, I believe there are people who would give thousands of pounds if they could have got into their name into God's word in a, in a sympathetic way, in a good light. All oh, to have been in that book. That book which is the word of the Lord which abides forever and ever. To have a place in there, in a, given in a good light. People are all the time paying things in the old days. They used to, to have things stuck up on churches. This was given by so-and-so. That was given by so-and-so. The organ, this, the other, the thump. I don't know what else. Trying to sort of give themselves a place. Build for themselves a kind of memorial. But you know, the fact of the matter is this. These people have got a memorial in the Word of God itself. And it wasn't something uh, that they realized at the time. None of them had any idea that their small and in many ways insignificant contribution was to bring them into eternal remembrance. Sometimes we are too big for God. We cannot be bothered with the small things, the mundane things, the chores. The routine practicalities of living. We long for something big. Something obviously of God. Large, powerful, eye-catching. We overlook, we ignore, we bypass the five loaves and two fishes. They're there, but we wouldn't see them. We've ignored them, passed them over. The two mites, they're there, we passed over. The small things upon which hang such tremendous issue. And because of that we are eternally the poorer for it. May God help us to learn this lesson. He doesn't despise small things. Indeed, it says in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 that he, the eyes of the Lord, watch, on the, watch those things all the time. For, don't forget, it's a truism, but don't forget this, for out of small things, large things grow. It was, after all, at Bethlehem that God worked so tremendously. Bethlehem led to Calvary and to the throne of the universe. That stable, that manger, led to the throne of God, which is forever and ever. The babe of Bethlehem has become king of kings.
and Lord of Lords. No smaller or meaner beginning has had a greater or more glorious end. So the lesson of this small passage is don't despise small things. You may find that in the fulfillment of humdrum routine chores, when done in faith, when there's faith and obedience, mean more to God than some great sermon preached in unbelief. God help us to see that and bring us all more and more into what he is doing. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, we commit this study to thee, and we pray, Lord, that thou wilt thyself reveal to us something of the truth within these few verses. May we be those who wake up, Lord, to those things in our lives which perhaps we're overlooking. Things, Lord, small things, things we despise, things we don't care to investigate. Lord, we pray that every one of us may this night realize, Lord, in a new way how those small things lead to great things. So we commit ourselves to thee, Lord, and ask thee to write thy word upon our hearts. In thy name. Amen.